and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now, I know I say this every week, but uh, it's because it's important. Uh, please do subscribe, won't you, to the channel. It's very easy. You just go to the subscribe button and uh, press that. Next door there is a bell. If you press that, that means you will get notifications of all of our programs as they come up. So I uh, hope you do subscribe. Uh, now, my guest today uh, has been called by the writer Ayan Hershey Ali, one of the bravest people of our time. Yasmin Mohammed is a former Muslim. She is now an activist and writer. She's been very critical of Islam. She's the author of a book called Unveiled, How Western Liberals Empower Radical Islam. And she's also the founder of an organization which fights for women's rights called Free Hearts, Free Minds. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today, Yasmin. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me, Peter. Um, you have been quite remarkably uh, outspoken, uh, you know, for a number of years now. Um, when I say that, it, it's not that you are being unreasonably outspoken. You just have <laughs> exercised your free speech. Um, I, I wonder if I could start by asking you about something, because this is something that sort of issue that you have remarked on many times before. Uh, in Britain at the moment, we have a, a situation. We have a school in Yorkshire, Batley Grammar School, where a teacher showed a cartoon of, the, of Mohammed to his pupils. As a result, the school pretty much seems to have disowned him. He's gone into hiding and, and you know, frankly, in danger. Um, that's a sort of situation which is becoming all too common, is it not? Yes, absolutely. It's, it's really sad to see when a country like Britain gets it so unbelievably wrong in a situation like this, we have to be really careful to respond in a way that lets people who want to enact blasphemy laws or people who want to stand in the way of free speech or free expression, we have to react in a way that lets them know that that's not possible in the West, that we have already fought these fights. Mm. We have already won these fights. We have already agreed. We are already of the mindset that freedom of expression is paramount. Mm. And we are not going to go backwards on these issues. Um, of course, when it happened after Charlie Hebdo, you had all mm. sorts of responses where people said things like, oh, well, they shouldn't have printed those cartoons with, you know, the teacher Samuel Petit getting beheaded in the middle of the street on his way walking home to his wife and children. You had outlets, you know, like the New York Times saying things like, oh, the police kill a man yes, yes. <laughs> in France. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the headline is referring to the jihadi, to the murderer, as opposed to the, the teacher, mm -hmm. um, the victim in, in this situation. So there's, there's a very, it, not only is it disheartening, it's terrifying mm -hmm. to see the West getting these issues wrong. 
I mean, there the countries exist, countries like Pakistan and Saudi Arabia and Bangladesh. All of these countries, we know what happens to people who try to free their minds in any way. Anybody that expresses themselves in any way other than what is deemed appropriate by the state. We see what happens to those people in those countries. And it's really terrifying to see that in the West, it's not a safe place for people to have free discussions because the same people that will murder them or that will terrorize them in countries run by Sharia are the same people, the same groups of people that will control free Western democracies. And that, that's very, very terrifying. What should the reaction therefore be to the situation, say, in Badly? I mean, um, I know you talked about what they should do after Charlie Hebdo. What, what should the West, what should a, the British government be doing? We should 100% support this teacher. What I really liked was in one area of France, in Montpellier, after the tragedy with Samuel Petit, who was another teacher, similar situation to the teacher in Batley Grammar School, um, and that he was having a discussion with his class. And in the discussion, he showed the caricature of Muhammad. What they did after that was they took those caricatures and they basically um, had them on buildings all around Montpellier. Big, huge screens were showing these pictures, you know, 10-foot screens. That was a great response. Mm because it was a response that did that showed power and that showed that you were resolute in your values but you are not being aggressive you are not being violent you are not responding in kind but you are saying these are our values this is what we believe you will not stop us you will not force us to abide by your rules I think it's pretty much inconceivable that something like that would happen in Britain, actually. The, the idea, you know, that these things would be displayed. Um, even to reproduce the Charlie Hebdo uh, cartoons was seen as an act of extraordinary bravery on the part of, you know, certain people in the, uh, in the media here. Um, you mentioned the teacher there, Samuel Pete, who was decapitated. Are you surprised or not surprised, Jasmine, by, you know, the fact that we barely seem to hear about it now. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. there's been almost no real ongoing trauma about this. And yet we've had extraordinary trauma with George Floyd. Yes, absolutely. Um, This is something, unfortunately, the, the media really chooses what it wants to focus on and what it wants us to forget or not even know about. It's, uh, you know, it, it's deliberate. Mm. Um, and it's the same sort of thing that you see happen all the time where, you know, women in Muslim majority countries are suffering daily from, you know, they can't even choose what clothing they want to wear without being imprisoned. Mm. 
but you don't hear about those kinds of situations. Mm -hmm. You don't hear about the fact that marital rape is still legal in most Muslim majority countries. Um, you know, there are there are women's groups that will choose to focus on, let's say, trans women in sports or something like that, something that affects, you know, 0.001% of the population. But then you have, you know, like almost 90% of women in Egypt are subjected to female genital mutilation. But women's groups don't want to talk about that. And in the same vein, if we look at LGBT groups, you know, they will be very keen to put rainbow flags all over the packaging of all sorts of, you know, chocolate bars and ice cream and cereal and everything else. But will they raise their voice to, to, to speak about the fact that 15 Muslim majority countries will execute you mm -hmm. for being gay? That doesn't come up. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that kind of situation happens, you know, it happened in the UK too recently where you had a, um, you had a, a curriculum called No Outsiders yeah, that yeah. was encouraging British children, whether they be straight or gay or Muslim or Christian or, uh, you know, black, white, it doesn't matter. There are no outsiders. We are all British. And it was a, you know, it's, it's a beautiful um, lesson to teach children. But instead, you had hundreds and hundreds of parents, Muslim parents, out in front of the schools chanting being gay is not okay and pelting parents with eggs if those parents were trying to post rainbow flags or any kind of support for gay kids in the school. Um, you kind of find yourself at a crossroads where, you know, who, who are you going to support or what are you, where, when will you stand up for your values? You know, you can't just continue to um, ignore the things that you want to ignore, like, you know, the anti-Semitism, for example, the way it's been rising so much in Europe. And we, we don't want to talk about it because the anti-Semitism is coming from Islamists. Mm. So it's like you, you, you constantly find yourself at this crossroads where you have to, the West needs to figure out, um, are we going to have values that we are going to proudly, you know, um, defend, or are we going to capitulate to people who might respond with violence? And so we fear that, and so we're going to continue to allow them to bully us into submission. I mean, there there needs to be, I believe. Um, there needs to be a response to that. And the media is not helping with the way that they're constantly couching things in uh, a narrative that always portrays a Muslim person as a victim, even if they are a jihadi. Yes, it, it is quite extraordinary. You, you mentioned there, you know, about the lack of protest about, you know, female genital mutilation and, or the lack of emphasis on it. Or in the LGBT case, you know, the LGBT lobby in Britain, I'm sure it's the same in America, you know, very, very strong going on after Russia maybe, but you almost never hear them talking about these countries ever. Um, I wonder what you thought therefore of like something like the Me Too movement, which got enormous 
enormous yeah. purchase, didn't it, in the media? This is sort of yeah. like a, a kind of, not exactly a displacement activity, but it's sort of, it's about, well, dare I say it, sort of basically privileged women, you know, in Hollywood, maybe. This is the point. Yes, you're absolutely correct. And you mentioned Diane Hercielli, who is my personal hero. She wrote a book recently called Prey, mm. which basically talks about how the Me Too movement was very, very big and um, for exactly how you what you just described for privileged women in Hollywood. It was very helpful for them. But when it started to, you know, when we start looking at women less um, privileged women in other parts of America or in other parts of Europe, there is not nearly that kind of support for those women. In fact, the opposite is true. So again, if we talk about all of the rape gangs in the UK, the reason why those women were ignored for so long um, was because they were un they were not privileged women. That was part of it. And the other part of it, of course, is because most of the perpetrators were, were Pakistani Muslim. Mm -hmm. So these women were, were thrown to the wolves, essentially. They were ignored by the system. There were politicians, there were journalists, there were all sorts of people who tried to blow the whistle on the situation, but they were called Islamophobes, they were called racists. And so these women were, you know, they did not get to be valued the way other women were. The, ha the hashtag Me Too movement did nothing for them. They were they were ignored. And well, so that's, that, that's a know, sad reality. I mean, I think that they, yes, exactly, ignored. I mean, I think that maybe one of the problems with this is that, as you say, the idea of Muslim people as being victims, but also it's sort of like this fear of being called a racist, uh, which of course is actually nothing to do, as you've pointed out. You're talking about a religion. You're not talking about a race, are you? No, you're absolutely not. And it's important to note, too, that within that religion, there are people who are political Muslims. So they are called Islamists. Mm. So it, it's not just in an, uh, in an immutable characteristic or, or somebody's faith. This is a political decision. This is like saying this person is you know, a, a communist or whatever, like there, this is a political affiliation and Islamist is somebody who is really trying to spread Islam in a nefarious way. So when you, when, so I, I will give you a good example. There is a book written by Majid Nawaz, mm. who uh, he is from London. Yeah. Um, his book is called Radical. Mm. And he was part of Hezb Tahrir, which are an Islamist group. Mm. And he describes, you know, in explicit detail how when he was an Islamist, he used all of these uh, supports for Muslims or, or, or um, this narrative of Muslims being victims or this attack of anybody who says anything about Muslims, attacking them as racists or bigots. They used all of that. Mm as a means of, of protecting themselves so that they could do their nefarious work quietly without being, you know, uh, subjected to authorities paying attention to what they were doing. He tells a story of how they even had pictures of a woman in Naqab carrying 
a machine gun and when they and they were posting those pictures up around the university and when his uh you know the dean of his department or somebody called him into their office and said look you can't be putting these these pictures up this is this is violent this is you know pushing a, a political agenda he accused the school um administration of being racist mm. and so they backed off and they said okay sorry sorry keep those up mm. keep those things up and they were allowed to roam free in his university until somebody was killed in the quad in the in the in the middle of their university somebody ended up being stabbed to death and so then the university finally said okay okay enough we can't allow these Islamists to continue to um, to run free. Yes. And that's kind of what you see happening in France as well. There's this constant, no, 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 it's not happening. It's okay. Just ignore it until things get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. France is only reacting now after rivers of blood. Mm. How many hundreds of people have been killed in France, you know, in the past decade due to jihadis? Innocent people going to a theater, you know, you same thing happening for you in the UK. You had the Ariana Grande concert. You have, you know, all sorts of attacks on the different bridges across your country. Um, these are continually ignored, ignored and, until things get so bad that people will finally be forced to react. And, you know, that's not the best case scenario. That can be very ugly if you let things fester for that long. Yes. I mean, on that point, actually, before I ask you a bit about yourself, uh, you know, how does Islam and criticism of Islam fit into the current woke onslaught? I know you've been talking about it for, uh, you've been talking about Islam for a long time, but, but I mean, what we're, I'm basically talking about the last year, Black Lives Matter, the woke agenda, all of these things have come to the fore. Where does Islam sit in that? Well, it's anti-West. Yeah. So they they are, you know, standing hand in hand in their in their both have hate for the West and for Western values and for, you know, liberal values and democratic values. So they support each other in, in that way. And unfortunately, we've seen these alliances happen before. We've seen it happen in Iraq. We've seen it happen in Iran. We've seen it happen in Syria. And it always turns out very badly for the far left. <laughs> they, you know, they're obviously just, um, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They are short-term um, buddies or allies for the time being. But, you know, Islamists, of course, disagree with the anybody on the left. You know, Islamism is a very, very, it's, it's, a, it's a fascist ideology. I'm going to plug a third book for you um, called Islamofascism, written by Hamid Abdusamad, who is an Egyptian German, um, and, and where he talks about that, uh, just the parallels, just to, to, to let people see that there is fascism within this ideology of political Islam, because people just tend to see it as... Uh, uh, an Eastern religion like Buddhism or Hinduism or something like that, they see it as something exotic and kind, and they're unwilling to see, to recognize, to acknowledge what 
these Muslim majority countries look like, what people living under Sharia, how they're living, especially women, how are they surviving? Like, so for them to, to think that it's just a docile, benign religion or benign ideology that we shouldn't be concerned about is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a choice to be that ignorant. It's, yeah, I think that what what happens here um, is, that if, for example, if there is a terrorist attack, um, it will be you can almost set your your watch by it. There, within about a day, uh, the prime minister or a major figure will say, "This is a a perversion Islam. of Islam," and then also, Islam is a religion of peace, um, and 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 we must not therefore start uh, tarring everyone with the same brush. All of these things. Um, but the point is, people have kind of got slightly wise to this, you know, now, but it doesn't change anything. But these are the responses we have. Yes, it's very Orwellian to me. It's very, you know, slavery is freedom, war is peace. Yes. Um, I understand why they would want to say that. I understand that they do not want people to be bigoted towards your average Muslim woman in a hijab right. riding this the the tube or something like that. I understand that. But to pretend that it is a religion of peace or to pretend, I mean, we all know we we don't it, it's it's almost insulting to try to convince people that you know that Islam is not at the root cause of the Islamic state <laughs> of Iraq and Syria, you know, of, of Al-Qaeda, of Boko Haram, of, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of Islamist, you know, Islamic terrorist organizations. We understand that there is a connection between the two and continually trying to tell us that there isn't is going to make people untrusting of whoever it is that's trying to tell them that and it's going to make them even more nervous of muslims because they're feeling like hang on a minute why are you trying to pull the wool over my eyes mm. you know so it, there should be an honest discussion there needs to be an honest conversation and that's not happening unfortunately they keep on going to this binary of all or nothing. And I mean, you see it quite often with the woke, right? All white people are racist. Mm. Like there's there's a very um, absoluteness with, with their the way they speak, which is so incredibly childish. It's, it's, it's Disney-esque mm. with this binary of, you know, good guys wear white hats and, and bad guys wear black hats. It's, it's not like that. Mm. Islam is a religion and Muslims are within a spectrum. And that spectrum can be anywhere from somebody like Majid Nawaz, author of Radical that I mentioned, all the way to Osama bin Laden or, um, you know, the uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, leader of ISIS. Hmm. So we have to we have to have a conversation that includes that nuance because those people that like how many people were responsible for what happened to Samuel Petit? It turns out there was like over 50 people responsible. Mm -hmm. There were parents, there were kids, there were imams from the mosques, 
There were all sorts of, you know, Muslim organizations spreading Samuel Petit's picture and his his address on social media. This was a, a, a you know, it was not as they always like to placate the public by saying, oh, it was a lone wolf. Oh, it was just another lone wolf. Oh, look, another lone wolf. You know, they <laughs> they just happened to keep on having a bunch of lone wolves, you know, because the they one... want people to feel... You know, sorry, the other one we have here a lot is uh, mental health problems. Yes, yes. That's the other one, you know. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's, it's insulting. It's insulting to the, to the citizens. And people deserve to be treated with respect. And um, the conversation needs to happen where people do express that there are, of course, many, most human beings are good people right within any ideology or within any race or within any religion or within whatever we most human beings are good people but we cannot pretend that there is not a group of people that are inspired by their ideology to pick up a, a knife and stab people or to cover themselves in a suicide vest and go kill infidels. Mm -hmm. These things happen all the time because there is a root cause for it. And that discussion needs to happen. Most, first and foremost, it needs to happen within the Muslim community themselves. Mm -hmm. And I do see that happening sometimes. So if there was one imam in France who was trying to speak up when the Samuel Petit tragedy happened, and of course, he's now in hiding, similar to the Batley Grammar School teacher. Um, and his life was also, um, they threatened his life and his family's life. But he was still speaking up. As a Muslim imam, it means a lot for him to speak up. And there, you know, there are a lot of Muslims who are trying to fight this um, violent ideology within their own camp but they unfortunately are not being supported by the wider society. The wider society is instead calling them native informants, Uncle Toms, you know, all sorts of slurs. And we want to stick to the binary of no, 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 no. All Muslims are good people. Islam is a religion of peace. Don't listen to these Muslims who are trying to speak out against the the violence in their camp i'm i'm trying to remember the name of a man in london who just recently wrote a book um where he went around to a different to a whole bunch of different mosques all around the uk and he was exposing what that was happening in those mosques what children were being taught what people were being taught when they went for their friday prayers dur during the sermon during the khutbah I'm sorry, I can't remember his name, but he is a co-founder of, of an organization called Quilliam, which is a counterterrorism group. Oh, right. Yes, yes. Yeah. So he he's a Muslim again, speaking up. He is saying these things are true. Stop saying it's a religion of peace. Stop saying it's racist to speak out against these violent Islamists. This is a problem. We need to address this problem. We need to teach our children differently. We need to stop thinking that anti-Semitism is okay because we're trying to free Palestine. Like we, these are conversations that need to happen within the Muslim community. And this is why the subtitle of my book is how Western liberals empower radical Islam. Mm -hmm. 
is because the Western liberals think that they're doing a good deed by shutting down this conversation, by shutting down this criticism that is, is so dire. This criticism needs to be voiced. It needs to be voiced. We need to listen to the voices within the community that are speaking up and we need to support them. We should not be shutting them down and continuing to support the conservative Muslims or the fundamentalist Muslims instead. Has your own life been uh, under threat That's been in, as a result of what you say and what your activism? Yeah, so as I describe in my book, I didn't, you know, initially when I started to do, to write my book, I was anonymous. And I wanted to stay that way because um, the man that I was forced into a marriage with is a terrorist. He's currently in prison in Egypt, but he's a member of Al Qaeda. So I didn't know where his friends were or if his friends would be able to get to me or to get to my daughter. We had a daughter together. Um, so I was very scared to speak out. And I knew that if I came out publicly, that it would be a risk. And it was a it was a risk I was willing to take because there are there are countless countless people living in Muslim majority countries who would love to be as vocal as I am right now, but they simply cannot. They have so many more restrictions on them. They would, you know, I'm living in a free country. And so I'm privileged to be able to be sitting here with you right now and being able to have this conversation with you. Um, you know, in, in Bangladesh, people get hacked to death in the streets with machetes. In Saudi Arabia, you get lashed, you know, with whips by the, the government. Um, in Pakistan, you could get beaten to death, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I feel like, um, <coughs> sorry. It's okay. I feel like despite the despite the risks, I'm compelled to do this work. Yeah. Can I ask you a bit about, you, you know, your, your, your own background uh, <coughs> has been quite extraordinary. Um, and obviously, as I said at the beginning, you are an ex-Muslim, which of course, in scriptural terms, puts you in a bit of a difficult position before anything else. Um, but can you tell us a bit about your family you know, you mentioned earlier a, a big spectrum, you know, going from one side right to ice and another. Where did your family sit on that spectrum? I mean, was it a very strict upbringing or, or, or a, a relatively liberal one? No, it was not liberal at all. It was, it was a very strict upbringing. Um, but because it was all I knew, I didn't realize it was such a strict upbringing. Well, I, I, let me, I'll explain. So, um, my parents divorced when I was about five or six years old. And my they had been living in San Francisco and they had recently moved to Canada. And so my mom found herself with three children in a new country and she went looking for support. She went looking for community. And unfortunately she went to the local mosque and she is Egyptian and she found another Egyptian man 
there who was already married, already had three children, but offered to take her on as his second wife. So technically in Canada, polygamy is illegal, but they turn a blind eye. Um, so she became his second concurrent wife and he started to demand all of the changes to our lives. So first of all, my mom started wearing this gray cloth on her head. Um, he would, he broke all of her records. She used to have these records of like Dolly Parton and mm -hmm. Kenny Rogers. He broke them all because music is haram, music is forbidden. He didn't allow me to play with the neighbor's children anymore because interacting with non-Muslims is haram, is forbidden. Um, I was no longer allowed to ride my bike. I was no longer allowed to go swimming. I was suddenly forced to read this, you know, strange language. I had to start reading the Quran. And I, even though I knew Arabic, it's a, you know, a classical Arabic and it was, it was very odd to me. And uh, it, was a, it was a completely different language, not that I could barely speak or read or write English yet at that point anyway, I was so young. Um, and I had to pray five times a day and my siblings and I would be punished harshly if we didn't memorize the Quran or if we missed any of our prayers. So, it, you know, Islam did not, it, it was not a positive thing coming into my life by any means. It was, it was very scary, it was very violent, it was very negative, um, and I fought against it for a long time. But by the time I was nine years old, I was put into an Islamic school, I was put into hijab myself, and then you're a child and you just eventually stop fighting. You know, there's, you're, not gonna, you're not gonna win this one. And so even though internally I was, unhappy and I wished for my life before this man entered it, I was too scared to rebel. I was too scared of him because he was very violent. And I was too scared of Allah. I was too scared of burning in hell for eternity. And so, um, you know, that was my life. My mother was the head of the Islamic studies department at the Islamic school. So she was a, you know, a pillar of the community when it came to, uh, you know, who to look for as an Islamic resource, because she was a student of Al-Azhar University, which is, you know, the most prestigious Islamic university. Um, and so we lived this life. And when I ended up getting forced into a marriage, it wasn't a surprise by any means mm -hmm. the, the year prior they had forced me tried to force me to a marriage with my second cousin and I got out of that and so you know it was almost like at least this time they're forcing me to marry somebody who isn't my cousin mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. <sighs> and so you know, I, he barely spoke English. He was 15 years older than me. I didn't know anything about him. He was chosen by them. And my mom told me that he was somebody who would be strong enough to control me. Mm. She felt like I needed someone strong enough to control me. 
because even though I was too scared to rebel, she still considered me the black sheep of the family. And she would tell me that I was the black sheep of the family because I was constantly questioning things. Things made me uncomfortable. Things did it weren't logical. And so just the fact that I was um, questioning things made me the black sheep. Yeah. Did, when did you then make the break, Yasmin? I mean, with this one, when did you... When did you discard it? I mean, it's a huge step if you're if you if you're told that you, you know, it's not just a case of being excommunicated; you could be killed. Absolutely, yes, and and you, you're told that you know that you understand that that's the risk that you're that you're taking. Um, for me, it was actually having my daughter. So once I had my daughter, and I was holding her in my arms, she was barely a week old, and. You know, her dad came up from behind me and he looked down at her and he said, when are we going to get her fixed? And I said, what do you mean? He said, when are we going to get her cleaned? And I was like, well, I just gave her a bath. I don't understand. And then my mom pipes up and she says, oh, no, 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 no. We'll do that later when she's five or six years old. We'll take her to Egypt and we'll get it done. And that's when I understood that they were talking about FGM. So when you are a parent, you will, you know, especially a brand new parent, you're filled with this overwhelming desire to protect your baby. And at, it was at that moment when I decided, you know, there was nothing that was going to stop me from protecting my daughter from being mutilated by these people. And I, in my mind, I thought to myself, well, I have a window of about five or six years to get myself together and to get her out of here before that happens. Now, I had a high school education and this, these were the days before, you know, social media. So I'd lost contact. That's, that's when an abusive man does or in an abusive relationship, that's what they do. First step is to separate you from anybody who could support you. So I had no connection to any of my friends anymore. And so I was alone in the world uh, with a high school education and a daughter. So it was a, it was a daunting thing for me to consider how was I going to escape with her, especially without the support of my my mom, I knew for sure that I would never get her support because being divorced as a Muslim woman is a shame on the honor of the family. And so I hesitated. I didn't move quickly enough. And I ended up getting pregnant a second time. And when I got pregnant the second time, I, I lost it because I felt I was so angry at myself for not getting out when I had the chance. And I thought, well, now I have two kids, so that's it. I'm just going to have to go to Peshawar like he wants, which is, you know, he wanted to be a jihadi in northern Pakistan, and he wanted our to have a whole bunch of kids there that were going to be jihadis as well. And I was, uh, you know, I I submitted, which is the definition of the word Islam, 
I submitted at that point and I said, well, that's it. There's, I give up. There's no way I'm going to be able to survive with two kids. I, I missed my window of opportunity. And then I went to have an ultrasound and it turns out that the baby didn't have a heartbeat. And so now here I am, of course, first and foremost, I'm drowning in guilt because I feel like I killed my baby by not wanting it um, and by by thinking that this baby was the key in the lock and that was, you know, the the nail in the coffin for my life. So I thought that was my fault. I was the reason why the, the baby didn't have a heartbeat. But at the same time, I felt like this is my chance to save my living child. And so when the nurse turned to me and said, we're going to do um, the DNC surgery and you're going to go under general anesthetic and then you're going to need somebody to drive you home. Obviously, she didn't realize that I didn't drive. I wore a cob at this time. So everything was covered, even gloves. Um, and you're going to need someone to help you with your little daughter for the next 24 hours or so because you might be groggy. Well, I just saw that as my new window. And I told him, the nurse says I'm going to need a week to recover. I'm going to go need to stay with my mom for a week. Otherwise, you're going to have to help me with the baby for a week. And I knew he would never agree to that. And so he said, yeah, sure, you can go stay with your mom for a week. And I was thinking that it would be much easier to get away from my mom than it was to get away from him. And so that's why I wanted to do this. And, you know, Miracle of Miracles is completely by the skin of my teeth. This was it was complete chance. And um, I went to my mom's apartment and the next day she got up to go to school because like I mentioned, she was, uh, you know, at the Islamic studies or sorry, at the Islamic school. And I flipped through the yellow pages and I found a lawyer who would be willing to um, give me a divorce, a restraining order and full custody of my daughter. And I needed all three things. And I had to, no money, but they were willing to this. I had to find a lawyer that was willing to give me a half an hour consultation for free. And so when I went, walked into the lawyer's office, covered head to toe in black, carrying a nine month old baby with me, um, she immediately took care of everything. She immediately gave me, you know, did up all the paperwork. And I told her, you can't phone me. Again, these are the days before cell phones. So the only phone number was my mom's. And there was no way that I wanted her to, to call the apartment to have my mom pick up the phone. So I said, you cannot contact me, um, but these are the things that I need. This is the information that I have. And, and that was it. And then I went back quickly before my mom <clears throat> got home from school. And after a few days, we hear he comes to the apartment and he's screaming in Arabic, give me back my wife. And I was petrified that somebody was going to let him into the building. 
But, you know, he's a six foot four Egyptian man screaming in Arabic. People knew better. So they didn't let him into the building. And I called 911, of course, and they were aware. They said, yes, we've, you know, officers are on their way. And that's when I discovered that he had been served with the divorce papers. And they explained to me that a restraining order only means that they can restrict him from coming, I think it was like 150 meters or something, to my mom's apartment. But that's it. Since I didn't go to school, I didn't go to work, I didn't do anything else, they couldn't stop him from going to any other buildings. And they explained to me that, you know, if I were to go to the park with my daughter, if I were to go to the mall or food shopping, there was nothing that they could, they, they can't restrict him from, uh, you know, they can't protect me if he happens to find me in those places. And so I put myself under house arrest and um, I stayed there until I was contacted by the Canadian intelligence, um, CSIS, who came and showed me a picture of him behind bars in Egypt and basically told me you're you're, you're free to leave the house now. You're, um, uh, he's behind bars. And so first thing I did was start applying to university and I got student loans and me and my daughter got out of my mom's house and we started our lives all over again. And when I was in university, I took a course called history of religions um, simply because I knew one third of the curriculum. And so I thought, well, I'm going to ace the, Islamic part. So I'll, I'll take this course. And in that course was the very first time that I was able to critically analyze this. I was allowed to question it. I was allowed to, 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 to criticize it. And I'd never been allowed to do that before. And I was so starving for that. I've been wanting to do that for so long. And so while that was happening simultaneously, 9-11 happened. And so I was bombarded both emotionally and intellectually. And so by the time that year was up, I no longer identified as a Muslim. It was, um, I was absolutely, you know, 9-11 brought out the worst in the Muslim community, not only my Muslim community, but uh, all over the Muslim majority world because it gave them this sense of uh, uh, such a morale boost. And they were so, they were handing out candies and singing in the street and very proud and happy at the fact that all of these thousands of innocent people had just died. And so I was so disgusted at that and horrified that I identified as the same group as the people that were acting like this that um, that pushed me very quickly out of wanting to um, identify as a Muslim. So after that, really, uh, is it right to say that you almost became an activist, uh, not exactly by accident, but, but it wasn't something you were planning to do? I mean, I know that with the book, which came out, I think, uh, two years ago now, the, the book, uh, unveiled, which you can presumably get on Amazon, um, I, you know, Amazon definitely, um, obviously, which is very much like a memoir too. Um, I remember you said that there was an incident 
some years on, it was just a TV incident, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. which I saw actually, because I, 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 I saw it actually, I think, live. It was a Bill Maher show. And this is, I wonder whether you could just tell us that. I know you've told the story before, but this is what really, thought, right, I've got to put this, I've got to write something. Yeah, so that was many, many years on. So my daughter was all grown up. I'm remarried. I have a new daughter. I've never spoken a word of anything to anybody. I've kept it all to myself. Um, I I hadn't even really expressed everything that had happened to me in therapy. (laughs) You know, like it was just completely um, just moving forward with my life. And this episode of, of Bill Maher that you described, so Sam Harris was the guest. And Sam and Bill were lamenting the fact that liberals are not standing up for liberal values when it's coming from the Islamic context. And the example that they brought up was that 87% of people in Egypt believe that anyone who denounces the religion of Islam should be executed. Now that's what the religion teaches anyway. So that number was not surprising to me. And, um, but what was surprising to me was that there were these two American men on television talking about it as if we mattered, as if my life was important, as if this was an atrocity worth criticizing. Because up until that moment, I, didn't think of it that way. I just thought of like, well, we don't matter anyway. We are, we, we are, people who leave Islam are considered traitors, rats, you know, just this, uh, they're described in the Quran over and over again as um, the worst of humanity, like non-believers, the worst of humanity, et cetera, et cetera. So you kind of internalize those feelings mm-hmm. and that self-hate without even realizing that you're doing it. And so when Sam and Bill started to talk about us as if we matter, and it felt very personal because I, my family is Egyptian and I left Islam. So it felt like they were talking about me. And of course, Ben Affleck at that point piped up and started to call them gross and racist and he shut down the conversation and he really was the epitome of the western liberal empowering radical islam because here are these men trying to speak up against radical aspects of the religion uh, violent aspects of the religion illiberal aspects of the religion and here he was the white knight coming to the savior to muslim people by saying no 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 you know you shouldn't be talking about that. So essentially what he was saying was ignore people like Yasmin. She doesn't matter. Mm. And the next day on Facebook, you know, in my personal Facebook, I didn't have, I did had no public anything. It was just, you know, meet my friends. They were the videos, uh, you know, clips of this episode were all over the place and everybody was, just so proud complimenting Ben Affleck for shutting down these two gross and racist men. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like I was in the twilight zone. I was like, what, what is wrong? How are you people, my friends? How are you people I've known for 15, 20 years, people that I've worked with, people that I've gone to school with, how could you get this so wrong? And that's when I 
realized that it was my fault because I'd never said anything about it. I had never even told them anything about my life. And so I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to have to set the record straight. And that's when I started to write my book. And I really did want to just put my book out there, but not have my self out there, not have my face out there, not have my voice out there. But I just wanted my story out there, Um, of course, because I was afraid for my life. But um, yeah, that's how it happened. And, And no, I definitely did not set out to be an activist at all. It was something that I just felt compelled to do because I was inundated with messages. As soon as I started posting chapters of my book on Tumblr, I was getting inundated with messages from people all over the world, specifically from women all over the world, um, telling me their stories, telling me how they relate to my story, um, asking me for support, asking me to to, uh, to to get the world to notice their fight yeah. um, from something, you know, all across the spectrum, from women being forced into marriages to women being, uh, you know, forced to wear hijab, from, you know, from women, their families finding out that they're not Muslim anymore and um, giving them three days to repent before they have them killed, you know, just all sorts of messages all the time. And um, I had no choice but to speak out because if they try to, uh, well, they simply can't. They're not in the situation where they can at all. I was in a situation where it would be dangerous for me, but at least it was an option for me. It's not an option for them. Well, I mean, it's an extraordinary, brave, uh, unbelievable story, uh, Yasmin. I mean, I just really wanted to to finish by asking you uh, a question, which I think that Ayan Hershey Ali has actually talked about. Do you think that there is the chance for reformation uh, in uh, Islam, or if is even if that's the right word, actually, because reformation tended to be going back to basics, actually. Maybe I don't mean that. Maybe I don't mean Reformation. <laughs> An enlightenment, maybe. Yeah. Um, I don't think that the religion itself will ever change because Muslims view the Quran as the literal word of Allah. It's not like the Bible in that it is, you know, metaphorical or that these are stories. This is the literal word of Allah. So when he says, if you fear arrogance, or disobedience from your wife, beat her, then he means beat her. He doesn't mean anything else. Um, And so there will always be a a percentage of Muslims who will follow the Quran literally. But I do believe that if there is secularism in the Muslim majority world, if there is a separation of mosque and state, so right now the you know Sharia is in the laws of all of these 50 Muslim majority countries. They're not absolute Sharia like Iran and Saudi Arabia, but you know even countries like I was just reading about Egypt this morning, marital rape cannot be criminalized there. They're they're unable to make it illegal because people keep 
the religious scholars keep referring to the religion and saying it's a man's right mm. to take his wife whenever he wants to. So humans cannot make illegal what Allah has made legal. So as long as the governments have, or sorry, the, the laws have a 1400 year old edicts in them, then those societies will never progress. They will always be like a, like a rubber band pulled back into ancient times again. So I think that it's, if there is a separation of mosque and state, if the, the laws of the, of the country, the education of the country, the government of the country can be secular, and if people aren't forced to abide by Sharia, then I really do believe that most people will choose freedom. Because I lived in Egypt for three years. I lived in Qatar for eight years. I've been, of course, you know, surrounded by Muslim people my whole life. And people are just people, you know, and especially when you think of women. Women are just, they all want to be free. They all want their autonomy. They all want their independence. Not all as in every individual women, woman, but all as in women from all over the world. So quite often you see women covered, you know, in burqas in Afghanistan or in a niqab in Saudi Arabia, you know, in, in 40, 50 degrees Celsius heat. And people say things like, oh, she likes to wear it. Hmm. It's feminist. It's empowering. That's absolutely ridiculous. Hmm. These are human beings. Hmm. Human beings do not want to be covered in body bags while they are still breathing. And to, to, to make that kind of assumption is insulting. Mm. You're, you're, you're talking as if these are some sort of subhuman beings mm. that they do not, that they wouldn't have the same feelings as the rest of us. Mm. They do. And, and if we were able to allow these women the option of traveling on their own, working if they want to, being independent, wearing what they want, without threats of imprisonment or acid attacks or um, being um, discarded by their family and friends and community and society, then these women would take that option. They want to be free. The same is true for men. Same is definitely true for minority groups like LGBT Muslims or Ahmadi Muslims or Sufi Muslims. Um, people want their freedom. People want to be able to think and feel and believe and act as they want without their state controlling them. And so I think that's where the hope for me lies. If there can be secularism in the Muslim world, then the people will choose freedom over Sharia. But as, um, you know, Yusuf Al-Qaradawi, who is a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, as he said a few years ago, if we did not have execution as the punishment for denouncing Islam, there would be no Muslims. Interesting. They know full well that they're keeping these people hostage. Well, they haven't kept you hostage. So, no. you know, um, your organization is called, isn't it, Free Hearts, Free Minds, if people want to find out more. Um, I have to thank you so much for sharing that, you know, your story and what you feel with us. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, Yasmin. And um, I really do wish you all the very, very best, you know, for what you're doing uh, going forward. Maybe speak to you again next year. I hope so.
Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Thank, Thank you. you. I look forward to it. Thank you. Um, that's it for this week. So what you're saying is we shall see you next time. Thank you very much.